Hi, I'm Darren Steele, and this is Think Queerly. I'm a coach, a writer, and a thinker. And in all the work I do, my intention is to help deep thinkers and creatives cultivate their uniqueness to experience more peace of mind, acceptance, and freedom. Now, today, I'm loosely titling this episode Universal Human Dignity, the challenge, the problem, the issue of universal human dignity. And what does that mean? This is going to be something like a on-my-mind, off-the-cuff episode. I journaled very deeply and for quite a few pages this morning And this is one of my practices. I get up and I do my business in the bathroom, go downstairs, have a glass or two of water, make an espresso, and I come upstairs and I immediately journal by hand and with a fountain pen. And I'll journal as much as I need to. It could be five minutes one day or it might be an hour like it was this morning. And then I might go into writing for articles that I'm working on or my podcast, but this morning it was just all journal. And I was feeling not so much down as deeply contemplative and reflective because I had watched for the second time the HBO production of The Normal Heart. And it really stuck with me. The story of the origins of gay men's health crisis in New York City uh, in the years just before 1984, which is when the period of the the film ends. And, you know, was also the year 1984 was the year that I came out just at 19 years years old, went to my first gay bar. But all the gay men that had died of HIV AIDS so quickly and how much they had to endure at that time in the pain and the intolerance and the shame. And this story written by Larry Kramer, um, who passed away last year is a very personal one because he is the main character, Ned Weeks in the story. And when he was kicked out of the gay men's health crisis by the board, um, I believe, if I remember correctly, from watching the uh, biop uh, about him that came out, I think in 2015 or 2016, he then went to England for a time and wasn't sure what to do with himself and literally sat down and six weeks later had typed out the original draft manuscript for what became a play uh, by the title of The Normal Heart and was recently a Broadway play uh, in New York. And it's, it's visceral, it's cutting because it just gets to the pain Uh, and the reality of what was experienced at that time. And why am I... I'm sharing this with you because at 54, like I said, I came out when I was 19 years old. Um, I was born in November, so I turned 19 in November of 1984. And I think I went out probably 
to, I guess, my first gay bars in in that following new year. So it would have been 1985. And I've been fortunate. Um, I'm negative, And just through my own discomfort with being receptive for anal sex, I think that is what saved me at the time. And coming out at a time when we knew people were dying, when we didn't know what was going on, I was having sex, you know, as a precocious, horny 19-year-old. But I was fortunate in that at that time, no one close to me got it that I knew of. But I know without doubt, I know without doubt, there are many men I slept with who are no longer alive today, who probably died very quickly in those first couple of years and maybe didn't survive past the introduction of the uh, um, the antivirals that were really the life-saving medication for people who contracted HIV. So where... What rabbit hole does this lead me down? It got me thinking about, what if that were me? You know, what if I had contracted HIV? What if all of my friends had contracted HIV and they all developed AIDS and passed away? The trauma that must have been experienced by those men who, in like a period of months, lost 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 friends. Can you imagine the PTSD-like trauma from losing that many people? It's, it's the same thing as, this, as if you're living in a war zone, you know, different kind of terror. But how the emotions handle that, I, I just don't know. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And it just got me thinking about the larger social issues about acceptance and morality and the constraints or limitations on whom we decide to respect, who we decide is human, who we decide has rights and privileges, who we decide gets to live who we pass by and not give a fuck about, whether that be in the physical environment, passing by somebody on a street corner who's sitting with a blanket over them and temperatures below zero, or whether that be on social media by calling someone a name or calling them whatever because you disagree with them or wishing them death on Twitter because you think it's an appropriate space to do that because you can just log off and not feel the consequences of your words. So it's just a very powerful reminder to me when I think about these ideas of unity or oneness and justice and morality and impartiality and what I'm calling human-heartedness, these ideas that I'm developing from my ongoing studies of the Tao Te Ching and other people who write about the Tao and let's call them spiritual slash non-spiritual ways of looking at the world. In other words, without ideology, without dogma, without practice, without needing to believe in a higher power, and I'm not disputing the validity of that or not, I'm just saying without the need for that. 
but I believe, and you might not believe this, but I believe every human is deserving of dignity. Every human has an inborn dignity that every single one of us needs to respect. We might not agree with what someone says or does. There may be somebody who is absolutely harming others or the planet. And then we have to look at how we can make that person accountable and help them understand that their actions were wrong. That's a very different approach. Something that I want to mention. There's a podcast I listened to that was one of the most profound things I've heard in a while. And it was Brene Brown's recent podcast uh, that came out on January 13th, which was her response to the Capitol riots and her response to people saying, shouldn't we be shaming those people? Shouldn't we be locking them up and throwing away the key? And so the title of the episode is Brene on Words, Actions, Dehumanization, and Accountability. And you can find that on her website, BreneBrown.com, or just it's a Spotify original and also available on Apple. It just really makes me think about when things like this happen that are so problematic. How do we grow and transform and evolve as a society together to create new means of developing cohesion and responsibility, but without making those accountable who have done something that we deem wrong, without incarcerating them in such a way, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be incarcerated, but without punishing seems like the wrong word, but making them realize that what they've done is wrong and coming up with better ways of making them accountable, put it that way. So there's going to always be degrees of imbalance in the world and society, and there's going to be some things in human social relations and in social interactions, which myself as a gay man, as a queer person, I feel are morally unacceptable. I, for me, one of the most morally unacceptable things is religious-based superiority and phobias and, and, and prejudice that are a form of moral superiority. The fundamentalist religions that profoundly work against the dignity of different human individuals for being gay, for being another religion, or for not being a believer. The behavior is dehumanizing. And then there's racism, which is a kind of power over plus prejudice against the color of one's skin or the origins of one's heritage. And then finally, the prejudice against human love and self-expression. And in this case, to be very literal, homophobia, queerphobia, transphobia, lesbophobia, biphobia, all of those things 
fear of the other who expresses themselves differently in their sexuality or in their gender presentation. You know, I think that's interesting. This is just another way of expressing gender and sexual identity freedom. Human love and self-expression. I really want to get away from LGBTQ2+. It's not that there's anything wrong with that per se, but the acronym is getting unwieldy because we're having to continually discern and create more identities and sub-identities to say we're yet another prejudiced group. And we're expanding this acronym to be included to be seen, to be heard. And I'm fucking sick of that. I'm sick of the need for us to have to do that, not for the acronym. I want the acronym to go away because it won't matter anymore. Human love and self-expression. Every human deserves the dignity to express who they are freely however that manifests by way of their gender and sexual expression and in whom they love. The freedom to love from the heart and to express oneself without prejudice. It's a big why. Why can't we love whomever we feel that feeling for? It's like, this is a, this is meta acceptance. We all work through degrees of wanting and feeling love and acceptance in our lives from childhood into adolescence and into adulthood. But for this world of humanity to improve, Acceptance for the inherent dignity of every human being is is of paramount importance. See, we do not live tribally anymore. We don't live in small groups dispersed all over the planet, perhaps kilometers or hundreds of kilometers away from each other, possibly not even knowing that there's another small group of humans over the mountain. And the way our brains have evolved historically and neuroscientifically is that we are patterned in the mammalian, as it's called, part of the brain to sense the us versus them because we're just seeking prediction and response. We're just seeking safety. And we have safety amongst those whom we know, our tribe, our small community, our immediate family unit. So that worked in the Stone Age. That helped protect us when we saw a strange human being wandering out on the plains, wondering, who the heck is this guy and should I be worried or not? But we don't live in that world anymore. And yet our brains have not caught up to no longer need that function. And sadly, Neither have our social structures, or our politics, or our ideologies, or our cultural myths. 
You see, we are a society that exists through multiple structures, layered myths and stories and organized, uh, sorry, and ideologies that allow us to organize the near seven, eight billion people, however many are now on this planet. And so many of these myths are based on these old tribal and primal ways of thinking, which absolutely served us and kept us safe in the past, but they're no longer needed. How old is Christianity? 2,000 years old. Christianity in its old state and its, in its most fundamentalist is not a helpful or humane way of functioning. It leads to dehumanization and war and lack of acceptance and hatred. Now, in the past, there were historical reasons for propagating the species. You read about them historically in the Bible and the misinterpretations of the language of the Bible, like the tribe of Israel saying that, you know, a man should not lay with another man. Why? Simple. Because their numbers were low. So they wanted men to have sex with women to make more babies. The Nazis made it illegal for anyone to have an abortion if you were German or Aryan, if you were part of the quote-unquote master race and you killed off one of your children, that was punishable, probably by death or being sent to a prison camp. But it was okay to abort if you were a Jew because that was the race they wanted to get rid of. But there were nothing in those dialogues, in those words, in those texts that said anything about it being wrong for men to have romantic love for two people of the same quote-unquote gender to have romantic love. And women weren't recognized, you know, until about maybe 150 years ago as having any kind of rights, so it was just a man's world. See, even that has changed. We just don't live in that kind of a world anymore. We have problems in this one, but a lot has changed. And our ideologies, our myths that we use to control society, haven't yet caught up. In fact, we haven't needed a lot of these outdated mores, these ethics and these morals or laws since at least the Industrial Revolution. Now, the challenge, of course, is that the power of these myths and the hold that they have over the groups of people, the organizations who believe in them, is that it's often done beyond reason or beyond logic. Maybe they've been taught this since birth. They've been indoctrinated by their parents, and all parents indoctrinate their children, even when they are well-meaning. But as adults, as adults, sometimes we are not taught that we can make our own decisions. We are not asked, why do we believe this? Why do we believe these ideas about love? Why do, be, why do we believe these ideas about friendship? Why do we believe these ideas about culture? Why do we believe these ideas about money? Why do we believe in this God and not another one? So here's a really simple question. 
How can you believe in a God that you have never seen? One for which there's no factual evidence. I, I, don't, I don't get it. That is the rigidity of belief when you refute all arguments to the contrary. Faith, perhaps, is a little bit more flexible. To have the faith that there is a higher power while being open to the possibility that perhaps you might understand things differently. And then another very simple question. What does that have to do with one human being loving whomever they wish as another human being? You see, we can see the one thing. We can witness love in action. We can witness two people in love. We can witness queer love. We can witness straight love. And the more that we see queer love in reality for what it is over time, repeatedly, what was once unacceptable might soften into something you seek to eventually better understand. This has happened with the rights of women, with more integration of different races, with less prejudice. I'm not saying it's perfect. There are still many problems. Things have certainly improved and evolved. But it's a serious issue for me when a single book, this one book called The Bible, is inherently problematic. There are more translations than we can count. There are errors in translation. There's always a problem translating anything that's 2,000 years old. And just a little aside here, I now have 10 or 11 translations and commentaries of the Tao Te Ching. Why? Because for my research, in order to say what I want to say, I need to try and understand all these interpretations, because that's what translation is, interpretation. And there are arguments over what verse means what, that this word is not the correct word to translate into English. And with the Bible, there are entire chapters and sections, sections which are included for some religions, which are not included for others. And yet, somehow, this is to be the Word of God. And for me, there's a lot of pain associated with this book because of the pain associated with how many religious people, Catholics, treated gay people, especially in the 80s with HIV and AIDS. When someone tells you that you need to believe this book, that you need to believe it in this book, in this book, think about this. If I gave you a brick and I said, you need to believe in this brick, you'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'd be like, you need to believe in this brick because this brick is the brick of God. God fashioned this brick out of clay and water with his own hands. It has been handed down through generations over 2,000 years. This is the brick of God. Some people are going to be really angry with me saying that. 
but I invite you to consider it. What I'm inviting you to consider is not to abandon your belief, but perhaps to think of it more as faith and recognize that belief is not flexible, faith is. And perhaps what you believe in is a myth that helps you choose a kind of morality about how you want to lead your life. I'm going down a rabbit hole here, and I want to talk about action. And the only way I see that we can change first minds, and then maybe hearts, because maybe we need to do both, a two-pronged approach. Work to change hearts and then minds, but for some people you need to change their minds first before you can change their heart. And I think society needs an intervention. We are all prejudiced to some degree. And this is a human condition, a human problem, and we must all share in this solution. And I think we need to look to organizing with those NGOs, non-government organizations, and those governments that are progressive and more liberal and supportive of diversity. Literally, as ridiculous as it sounds, I think we need social programs and free trainings and public messages on broadcasts across television and radio and the internet funded by the government about the freedom of every human being to express who they are and to love any other human being however they express themselves. To show more images of uniqueness and difference and creativity and diversity. A campaign that focuses on express and expresses love and understanding. A message that needs to be repeated and shared with other countries. One that is about acceptance for the dignity of every single human being. And I know this sounds like a pipe dream, but we have to start. And the more I drill down into this basic idea of acceptance for the dignity of humanity, for the dignity of humanness, for the dignity of every individual, Another question comes up. How is it that entire governments and, and massive religious organizations are so afraid of such a small population of people? Think about Chechnya. Think about evangelical Christian churches that preach against LGBTQ people. Think about Poland creating LGBTQ free zones. Fuck them. I know that's being very contentious. But that's how we should feel. And then take that feeling and turn it into some form of progressive action for change. How many LGBTQ people have escaped from their religion and their church? How many gay men are priests in the Catholic faith? How many queer people have simply existed, not calling much attention to themselves, and some who did, and made massive contributions to society 
that are celebrated long after they are gone or quickly ignored when it's discovered that they were other. You know, take Alan Turing. He broke the Enigma code that the Nazis were using to send their secret messages in World War II. He created an advantage that led to the end of the war and the defeat of Nazi Germany at a time when the Nazis were development, developing experimental rockets that they were just about getting ready to deploy that probably would have laid waste to cities unlike the air bombers that they had at the time. What a different world we might be living in today. Might not be having this conversation for two reasons. Might not be having this conversation because I might be in hiding as a gay person or because Turing is considered the father of computers. How could I be speaking into this podcast microphone, into my laptop, transmitting this to a server, and then having you download it to listen to on your portable mobile phone? This has been a long podcast, and I'm coming to the end. This is one of the reasons why queer people celebrate who they are at Pride events. And this is why we often fight about, should it be a party or should it be a protest? And I believe it should be both. And I've talked about this on several podcasts in the past. And it's why our acronym is getting too long, LGBTQ2S+. Because it's absolutely necessary that we celebrate the diversity of who we are. And the absolute imperative need for the freedom to love ourselves to have love for ourselves, to love those who call themselves queer or by any other individual label within the acronym, to respect our dignity, to respect the dignity of all other queer people, and to respect the dignity of all other human beings, regardless of whether or not they care about how they identify by gender or sexuality, and to have the freedom to love those who we choose to love however they express who they are, their mannerisms, the way they dress, the way they talk, the color of their skin, the shape of their hair. And we will protest when we are oppressed and when others seek to subjugate our dignity or cause violence against us. When we, while we have gained many legal and constitutional rights in the last 50 years in many countries. It's not enough. It was with great pain in my stomach and upset as I witnessed how Trump and the Republican Party repeatedly repealed and took away rights from trans people and sought to undermine LGBTQ individuals and create even more harm to the planet with their anti-climate change denialism. How can I link LGBTQ rights to climate change? Life is a human right. And if we fuck up our planet, life is really going to suck. There will be enough when everyone can accept everyone for who they are. It's not going to be perfect. There's always going to be learning. There's an ebb and flow to life. It is the way that things are. 
but we can create a mindful society that focuses on the balance, the equity of acceptance. It takes very strong people, strong of heart, and a careful, thoughtful willfulness to love when most others are expressing hate or disgust. It takes very strong people to work together for inclusivity and acceptance when social myths and dogmatic ideologies seek to control and suppress freedom of expression. But anger begets anger, and violence begets violence. We can only temper those emotional reactions with their antidote. It's a mix of understanding, love, love, acceptance, compassion, and non-contention, as well as humility. And the only way forward is loving, open-minded, compassionate dialogue and the understanding of accountability with those willing to have these kinds of conversations so that we may transform society as we know it. And I just want to mention two more things sort of as a follow-up in case you want to think more, read more. I'm currently reading the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. And on page 164 of the um, latest edition that I have, he writes, Culture, and here we mean culture in all of its myths, religion, politics, capitalism, all the myths that we use to organize ourselves. Back to the quote, culture tends to argue that it forbids only that which is unnatural. But from a biological perspective, nothing is unnatural. Whatever is possible is by definition also natural. A truly unnatural behavior, one that goes against the laws of nature, simply cannot exist. So it would never need no prohibition. No culture has ever bothered to forbid men to to photosynthesize, women to run faster than the speed of light, or negatively charged electrons to be attracted to each other. See, these concepts of natural and unnatural are not taken from biology, but they're taken primarily from Christian theology. And Harari goes on to explain what all of that means. And this is what I find so fulfilling and wonderful about the Tao Te Ching. It is not necessarily an easy book to understand. It's an easy book to read, and it could be read probably in a half an hour to 45 minutes. But when we look to understanding nature as by itself so, as not forcing we can look to the fact that we as humans are of nature. We come from nature. And our uniqueness amongst the species is that we can create from our thoughts. And we have created societies and culture 
and we have created these various myths, including religions, to manage ourselves, possibly first to manage basic morality. This is right and this is wrong. If you do this, you'll be punished. If you do that, you'll be rewarded. But those things have morphed over time into such complex structures that dehumanize some and elevate others to levels of power over individuals. And that results in dehumanization. And finally, what would really resonate with this podcast and some of the thoughts that are expressed in this podcast today come from the article Stride Toward Freedom, the Montgomery story by Martin Luther King Jr., which is the first article, if I understand it, where he uh, laid out the six characteristics of nonviolent resistance. Thank you for listening. Um, I've been in a bit of a mood all day, and I'm really glad I've recorded this. This is actually tearing me up. Um, I'm trying to find ways in the messaging that I'm doing, besides the podcasts and the articles I write, <clears throat> about coaching and personal transformation so that you can live a life with greater peace of mind and acceptance and freedom. I have to speak to all of those things outside of coaching sometimes. I have to speak to those things in the way in which I see the world. I have to say what I feel in my heart because what I'm saying, what I'm expressing is what I'm learning and teaching myself and putting into practice. I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear what insights you took from this conversation today. And if you appreciated today's deep thought, I would be most grateful if you would share this on social media or, or rate it on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're using to listen. And as always, if you can't think straight, think Queerly.